These have been challenging times, but the body of Christ has proven itself resilient. We've gathered in different ways, in different places, yet stood steadfast as the church. We have found peace in God's promise to never leave us or forsake us. In our separation, we have remained united. In our struggle, we have lived out our faith. In the midst of the unknown, we have leaned on the strength of an all-knowing God. Throughout history, the church has thrived in adversity. And this moment is no different. The power of God is unstoppable. His love unending. His grace unrelenting. His glory undeniable. Today, no matter where we gather, we remain God's people. Our mission has not changed. Our calling has not been altered. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever change that. We are the church, and today we stand resilient. Well, friends, I want to soak in this moment for just a sec. First of all, we got Murderer's Row on the band. (laughs) And then for 15 months, I've been talking to only a third of your faces. Now, the good part is I can just, I have just assumed for a year and a half that everybody's smiling underneath them the whole time. So now we'll find out if that's really true. Friends, I am so glad you're here. If we have not met, my name is Adam, and it's my joy to be the senior pastor here at our church. And I want to invite you to go back with me to elementary school art class. Just get, get in your mind. Do you, do you hear the, the sounds of little hands with, scribbling with colored pencils? Can you... Can you get the wafting scent of finger paint and recall that in your mind? Maybe like me, you remember taking your finished painting project and putting it on this thing, the drying rack, remember that, right? The, the, the piece of technology that still endures to this day. And then, and then as you put your, your, your artwork on the drying rack, you realized it barely qualifies as artwork because you see all the masterpieces of your, of your classmates. And you began to feel a sense of shame starting in third grade because of your art. And then your dad asks you, Adam, how did you get a B in art? <laughs> right? We, we teach ourselves comparison from an early age. You get a grade in art class. That just blew my mind. And the pressure was on starting young. This is not a new phenomenon that we compare ourselves to one another. The 10th commandment confirms this. People looked at what other people had and desired it. They wanted it. This is what Exodus 20 says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we didn't invent comparison, but in the 21st century, we have just figured out new ways to do it. All right, we compare GPAs, ACTs, and college degrees. And then in a few years, we compare houses, cars, and salaries. We compare our lives online. This is an actual quote from 2019. This is Instagram CEO, Adam Mosery. He detailed an experiment they were doing with taking likes off of people's public profiles on Instagram so that you could see how many likes the post got, but it wouldn't be public. This is what he said. It's about young people. The idea is to try to depressurize Instagram. 
make it less of a competition, and give more space to focus on connecting with the people they love and things that inspire them. People are assigning or denying themselves worth based on how many likes an Instagram post has. This is the reality we live in. We compare interpersonal and relational things. I am well aware that my wife Sarah's attractiveness is grossly disproportionate to mine. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I, I embrace it. In fact, when we were dating, we'd walk around like Columbia Mall or something, and I would see people's looks, I'd see them kind of do like, That's like a badge of honor for me. I'm like, that's right, Big Daddy. <laughs> now that's one comparison that plays in my favor, but most of the other times in life when we're comparing ourselves to something or someone else, we lose. And we all do it all the time. What I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together is that we should quit comparing what you're missing and start caring for what God's giving. In this series, Living a Resilient Life, we've tried to look at qualities that resilient people have. How is it that we can bounce back from challenges? And today I wanna to zoom in on the concept of pushing yourself to your potential. That's one skill that resilient people have. They push themselves to their own potential. And as long as we're stuck in the comparison trap, we won't be able to reach our potential. As long as we're fixing on the, fixating on the things we lack, we'll never give the proper focus to maximizing the things that we do have. Or we won't be resilient by making the most of what's around us if we're always thinking about what we're missing. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about a boss who, who entrusts some of his property to three employees. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture. And then he goes away on an extended trip and, and then he returns to see what these people did with the investment they were given. So we'll pick up in Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. So this story is, is sometimes known as the parable of the talents. And it's not talent like, like AJ playing drums, right? Or, or Mitch talking about uh, connecting cards. It's, it's a talent, the word talent, <laughs> the word talent in Greek is, is a measurement of money. And so in the NRSV version, which we're reading from today, kind of exotic, uh, it's, it's called silver, bags of silver. Other translations may say bags of gold. The point is that it was a weight. It was a weight to use as, as, as a denomination of money. And the worth in, in today's uh, terms, we could think of one talent as the equivalent of 15 years worth of wages. 15 years of wages. That's a significant amount of money. So the master is literally investing in his employees. And I love this line. I think it's kind of haunting that as he was leaving, he divided it in proportion to their abilities. One got one bag, one got two, and one got five. I had a friend, her, her name is uh, Nikki Kramer, and she was at my last church, and, and I, she had a phrase that she designed around this passage, and she would refer to people that, that had a lot of gifts and abilities as five-baggers, <laughs> right? And you, know, you, know, you ever look at somebody and be like, oh, save some talent for the rest of us, man. That's a five-bagger, a five-bagger. I like that. How much energy do we waste 
stressing out about why the five baggers got so much instead of focusing on what we've been given. Probably more energy than we'd like to admit. Well, let's read on to find out what these folks did with theirs. Verse 16, the servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with the two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, and he said that the last servant made his having fewer talents than others a pretense for not improving any. How often do we kind of compare ourselves to others and then justify our actions or lack of actions because we haven't gotten this or that? Well, if only I had. So as you can imagine, it doesn't, it's not gonna go real well for the third servant. Spoiler alert, right? It's, it doesn't end well. But let's check in on the first two. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. The servant to whom he'd entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more. And the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant to who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I have earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And so the master must have predicted their abilities well because they both came back with the return. We read the one servant gained five more bags of silver and the other gained two more. They both doubled them. So one servant returns 10 talents in total and the other returns four. So percentage-wise, they both doubled their original investment, right? They both earned 100% more. But quantity-wise, they did not. One returned 10 and one returned four. And so what does this reveal about the character of God, the, the way that the master responds to each of these servants? I believe God is just as concerned with the process as with the prophets. Because even though their results were different, their reward was the same. I love this story so much. The, their results were different but the reward was the same. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. What an amazing characteristic of God, that God would celebrate and reward them equally, even though their results were not equal. The master was not concerned with equitable returns, but he was concerned with equitable effort. The one with the two talents didn't excuse themselves from making the most of what they got. In God's economy, we aren't judged by what we haven't been given, but with what we make out of what we have been given. C.S. Lewis described this in his book, Mere Christianity. It's an excellent book if you're looking for something to read this summer. He said this, that is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material, but God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. Now let's check in on the, uh, on, on the third servant. Because he didn't put his money on a certified deposit. He didn't buy any Bitcoin. He just buried it in the ground. He, this, third, this third servant didn't even extend the smallest effort 
And this is an insult and an affront to the master. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. This is one of the phrases that sticks out to me from this scripture. And I think it's part of what keeps us from bouncing back, from being resilient. The third servant said, I was afraid. Sometimes we would rather accept defeat when we didn't try than go for something and fail. We would rather accept the consequences of not trying than the the sting of failure. I was afraid, the third servant said. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's worth pointing out that the third servant didn't come back with no money. Right? The master didn't lose the original investment But the master, it was an opportunity cost. The master could have given that bag of silver to one of the other ones and they would have done something with it. So the master didn't get no money back. He got his original investment and yet he still reacted the way he did. The problem with the third servant wasn't what he was or wasn't given, but how he used it. And the response of the master, for a long time when I would read this story, a little harsh, Jesus, isn't it? To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. I'm convinced that the master's reaction would have been different if the third servant would have returned nothing but tried something. That's just my own thoughts. But all he did, he just buried the silver in the ground. He hid it in the ground because he was afraid. Anything would have been better than nothing. The master was, was livid because the third servant didn't even do the bare minimum. He didn't try anything. And so the gift went to waste. And so when Jesus says, even what little they have will be taken away, well, functionally, that was already true because all they did was bury it. I like straight talk from Jesus. But I got another book recommendation for you. It's called Know What You're For by uh, a pastor and former executive, Jeff Henderson. And in this book, he details a conversation he had with a mentor of his. And Jeff asked his mentor, what's your definition of success? And his mentor replied, that's the wrong question. Success, he said, is measuring yourself against other people. Excellence is measuring yourself against your own potential. When you choose excellence, you move closer to your potential. You've got a lot of potential, Jeff. The question isn't about success. The question is, will you move closer to your potential? That hit me right between the eyes when I read it. And I thought I could use that in a sermon someday. So who was more successful, the five-bagger with the total of 10 or the two-bagger with the total of four? In the master's eyes, it was equal because they each fulfilled their potential. They maximized what had been entrusted to them. Friends, we got to quit comparing what you're missing. Quit trying to define success and compare yourself against that and start caring for what God's giving. 
I mentioned earlier how disproportionately attractive my wife is than I am. Uh, but she's amazing for lots of other reasons than that. Uh, from an early age, she knew that she wanted to be a teacher and that she felt God leading her into education. And her college experience solidified that. Um, despite not having mommy and daddy's credit card to, to charge whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted, uh, despite not having a car, despite having to claw and scratch for every scholarship, and despite having to take out loans, uh, she thrived in college. She didn't let any of those challenges stop her. She got a 4.0 in college. I do this all with permission, by the way. <laughs> Gonna pass the test. And then when she was entering the workforce in 2008, turns out there was a lot of teachers trying to get into the biz in suburban St. Louis. And so that first year, she had spent four years grinding, four years preparing to be a classroom teacher. And she's a full-time aide her first year because that's all she could get. She didn't let that stop her. She kept going. Year two, half-day kindergarten aide, or excuse me, half-day kindergarten teacher, other half-day teacher's aide, one step closer. So it wasn't until her third year out of college that she actually fulfilled her calling or her, her her objective of being a full-time classroom teacher. Three years, but even then she wasn't finished. Throughout that time, she would work on her master's degree, even while pregnant, hello, because she knew she still had more room to learn and grow. And then when we moved to Kansas City, she, she uh, got a job at a great school in the Park Hill School District. Then there was an opportunity to go start a new elementary school. Some of you may have heard of Hopewell Elementary you haven't, I wouldn't expect you to. It's a brand new building. You know, the, you know how kindergartners come in on their first day of school and they, they kind of don't know what's where? Well, at a brand new elementary school, every kid is like that because it's their first day in the building. They don't know what's what. So totally new school, do that first semester, then COVID hit second semester. Just the year from you know where, right? And then first semester 2020, she's asked to teach school online, okay? And I'm thinking like in our family, I'm, I'm Mr. Silverlining, I'm Mr. Positivity. And throughout this whole pandemic, when it started, and especially when Sarah's job was changing, I thought, I'm gonna have to prop us up around here. I'm gonna have to fight the good fight and, and you know, pick everybody up during dinner. No, it's been the opposite. You know, Sarah, I thought I'd have to console her every night, but it's, it's, that's not how it's been at all. And she didn't need to console me because of any of you, of course. I, I do wanna say that. But Sarah looked at this semester online as an opportunity to learn and grow, gain new skills, do a new thing. She nailed it. Last October, Park Hills Teacher of the Month, Sarah Musto. Yep. Second semester, this, this, this current semester, she's asked to come back to her classroom and teach a whole new group of kids who will be coming together for the first time in January. It's an interesting concept to say, hey, we need you to come back to do the job you used to do. But it was still an adjustment from the thing they had just asked her to do. Takes it all in stride. And as this whirlwind of a year comes to a close, you'd, you'd think she'd be ready to take it easy, right? No. She's looking into doctoral programs to continue to learn and grow. She didn't let not having a car uh, stop her from reaching her potential in college. And she didn't let this bonkers year prevent her from continuing to learn and grow. What I have learned in the pandemic is that my wife is one third my size, but three times as resilient. That's what I've learned. She has taken the gifts God has given her and, and continued to pursue her calling of education. She's continued to push herself to her potential. She's an example that inspires me. 
Because I don't know about you, but this comparison stuff is hard to shake. And you're not immune when you're a pastor, by the way. You know another thing I've learned in the pandemic? Every church is only one click away. You don't, if you don't think I've done some clicking and comparing, that's, the, that's sadly not true. So friends, I encourage you to quit thinking of success as measuring yourself against other people, against trying to be a five-bagger. You may be a five-bagger, but as Ben Fold said, there's, all, there's always somebody cooler than you. So we, we all can compare ourselves to something else and feel like we're falling short. Quit comparing what you're missing and start caring for what God has given. In ever-changing and difficult circumstances, friends, let's strive to push ourselves to our potential so that one day we too may hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, for the chance to be together, to see each other's faces, to sing praises to you, to lift our prayers to you, and to hear from your word. God, in this moment, remind us that we are not only your beloved children, but that we are your entrusted servants. Give us, give us the peace to quit this neurotic, constant comparison and help us to look at all the things you have given us and place under our care. God, as we leave this place, help us to use all of those things, all these good gifts that come from you for your glory. In your son's name we pray, amen.